Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Are you ready for Christmas? Has anyone asked you this question yet? Feeling the hustle and bustle of the holiday rush, how many of us are done with being asked this question? I mean, generally speaking, most of us are ready, aren't we? We're ready. The tree is up and decorated. The white lights, the colored lights are strung up and working, hopefully, twinkling brightly. Christmas cookies and other treats have been baked and are starting to be shared and enjoyed The annual Christmas card, photo, letter has been finished, stamped, and mailed. And all the presents are nearly there, too, in various stages of being purchased, wrapped, and either shipped or placed somewhere under the tree. And, of course, the stockings have been hung by the chimney with care. Are we ready for Christmas? Well, yeah, we believe we are. We believe we are ready. Still, no matter how much we do to prepare ourselves... There are some things about Christmas for which we can never really be ready. This Advent season, a time in the life of the church for counting down to the arrival of December 25th, we've slowly been rereading the story that makes all of this possible. The whole, this whole holiday extravaganza we call Christmas. The story of the God who is so for us that he comes down to be with us, to be born into our lives. Specifically, we've been considering the unexpected gifts of Christmas. You know, the gifts from God we never imagined we'd ever receive, and the gifts from God we didn't realize how much we needed. Today, we're focusing on the unexpected gift of preparation, of God's preparation of us for what he's doing, for how he's moving and working in both our lives and this world. And like many of the unexpected gifts of Christmas, Divine preparation may not be something we're asking or looking for, especially if we believe we've already prepared ourselves, that we've already prepared ourselves for whatever's coming next. But as we're going to discover today, there are just some things we can never really be ready for. And this is particularly the case when it comes to when and where and how the Lord shows up in our lives. Because where, when, and how God moves and works rarely lines up with our timetable and our way of thinking of how it ought to be. However, as the Christmas story makes clear, God doesn't just drop things, including himself, into our lap, into our lives. No, God prepares us for what is coming. God prepares us for his coming. God prepares us so that we can recognize, so that we can be ready for when and how and where he shows up in our lives. Let's hear from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. 
All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those loving in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he peered publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's an occasion a moment of pure, unadulterated joy for Zachariah and Elizabeth. Joy for and joy with this aged couple who, after longing their entire married lives for a child of their own, now, impossibly, and yet finally now, hold their newborn son in their arms. There is such joy at this moment for all those gathered, family and friends. After many years of hoping and praying with and for Elizabeth and Zachariah, after nine months of watching Elizabeth's body change and grow to create a womb for this baby to nest, after witnessing, holding, and passing around the latest member of the family, the new kid on the block, all those gathered believe they are prepared to celebrate. They believe they are prepared to name this child. But as Luke quickly reveals, as this precious, intimate scene unfolds, most of those gathered and those in the surrounding neighborhood are not prepared for what is about to happen. As it will soon become obvious that the movement of God in the life of a single family is but a precursor to something larger God is bringing forth the long-awaited next chapter of the Lord's promised rescue and redemption of the world. Now, it was the custom in the culture of that time for both family and close friends to join not only in the celebration of the birth, but also the naming of the child. Back then, there was rich theological significance in the naming of one's child. Rich theological significance. The giving of a name wasn't just about what to call you. The giving of a name was the first impression the foundational declaration of one's identity, of who you are, as well as who you would become. And it was a well-established custom to use names from within the family. And this was done to reinforce where one came from. It was to reinforce to whom one belonged, and as a part of that group, to the spirit and the ethos one ought to embody in how they lived, you know, to act like a member of the family. Therefore, everyone gathered, everyone gathered that day assumed that they were prepared for the naming of this miracle baby, that it would follow this long-standing tradition. I mean, what better way is there to honor the blessing of a son, the keeper of one's family line, than to name him after his father or his grandfather? And yet Elizabeth strongly objects to any such idea. 
Having been prepared in advance for this moment by God, Elizabeth insists her son is to be called John. Now, because Zechariah had been unable to talk since he first received word of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the gathered family and friends immediately assume, rather than being prepared by God for this moment, that Elizabeth is just breaking with tradition, that Elizabeth simply hasn't conferred with her husband about the name of their son. So they immediately turn to Zechariah. They immediately turn to Zechariah and they expect him, he's going to act sensibly, that he's going to rebuke his wife and give his son a proper family name. After all, while John was clearly a good and common name in Israel at that time, as they point out, no one in either Zechariah or Elizabeth's family carried that moniker. No one was called John. But Zechariah, like Elizabeth, was prepared by God for this moment. And so much to everyone's surprise, Zechariah grabs a pen and some paper and simply writes what Elizabeth already said. In the original Greek, Luke underscores, Zechariah doesn't write his name will or his name shall be John. No, Zechariah emphatically etches his name is John. Zechariah echoes back the announcement of the angel Gabriel from some nine months ago in the temple. Zechariah no longer questions what will happen, but now matter-of-factly declares what already is. This child doesn't need to be named because this child already has been named by God. And his name is John. John, which means God is gracious. Words initially written on paper soon become the divine words spoken aloud as Zachariah's pregnant pause of imposed silence in that moment is finally broken. Almost as quickly, the birth of this child named John becomes the talk of the town, revealing just how unprepared everyone is for what has happened as well as for what will come next. Luke briefly shares how befuddled with awe these recent events leave not just the next door neighbors, but everyone, everyone throughout the hill country of Judea, far and wide, all who hear about it start scratching their heads. They're scratching their heads and wondering what exactly is the Lord up to? What God has in store with the coming of this child? And once again, the Lord begins to prepare those with ears to hear for what is still to come. Immediately, Luke stresses, as Zechariah finds his voice, he does not use it to engage in small talk, no. From the lips of a still dumbfounded believer comes nothing but unfiltered praise. Inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that came upon his son in utero, as Zechariah speaks for the first time in a long time, he begins to sing, forthtelling through song of the preparation God has been making not only for this moment, but for all that has yet to happen. He echoes the theme and chorus of an oldie but a goodie, a covenant song, a divine promise of long, long ago, first made in a garden, in the aftermath of humanity's downward spiral into sin. Zechariah croons what has become known as the Benedictus. In fact, he picks up right where his cousin-in-law, who recently visited his wife Elizabeth, he picks up right where Mary's song, the Magnificat, left off. Zechariah begins by praising the Lord, Praises the Lord not for the birth of this child, his child, but he praises the Lord first for the one to whom his newly arrived son John, later to be known as John the Baptist, will repeatedly point. Zechariah heralds the horn of salvation that God has lifted up for his people, the incarnation of a divine victory for all humanity over sin, death, and the devil. 
He heralds the one who will be called Emmanuel, the one who will be named Jesus. Zechariah, like Mary, sings in the present perfect tense. And for all the grammar nerds out there, one of the uses of the present perfect tense is to refer to an action or state that began in the past that continues into the present time. In other words, Zechariah vocalizes God's covenant promises of redemption's arrival, of salvation being raised up, of mercy being shown, of rescue coming just when it is most needed, not as something far in the future, but as happening now, as already coming true. The second half of Zechariah's ballad narrows now into a consideration of his son, of whom John is destined by divine appointment to grow up to be. And Zechariah's newly born child will not be an ordinary member of the family. No, John has already been set apart as the one, the one who will lay the groundwork for the next deposit of the Lord's grace. John will pave the way for all the children of God finally to come home. Jesus, Mary was told by the angel Gabriel, Jesus would be called the son of the Most High. John, Zechariah now declares, will be called a prophet of the Most High. In the spirit and out of the tradition of the sages of old, sages like Isaiah and Malachi, John will fulfill the role of which all the Old Testament prophets foretold. John will prepare the way for the people to come back to God, for the people to recognize and follow the Messiah. And let us particularly notice how Zechariah sings of what his son John eventually will both cry out and enact in waters of the desert. That the groundwork of our salvation, the groundwork of all humanity's deliverance, rests not in any political or economic solution. No, the foundation rests in the forgiveness of our sins. My friends, though it may have fallen out of fashion for some, though many may dispute or mock any such notion, sin is the fundamental, essential, and universal problem of our existence. Our collective rejection of the person of God, our shared rebellion against the will of God for all life and creation, repeatedly exercised all for the sake of each of us looking to our own interests, all for the sake of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. This sin is what sabotages. Sin is what compromises. Sin is what polarizes us, not only from the Lord, but from each other. Sin is what inevitably shatters all the good intentions, all our best laid plans, all the sincere efforts of humanity in seeking to end violence, war, poverty, oppression, and building a better unified world. Sin is the problem, but as Zechariah's prophetic song reaches its crescendo, we hear the familiar notes of the gospel that change the music, that break once and for all the tragic repeated chorus of our brokenness. Let us listen, let us rejoice as Zechariah sings, not of the beginning of the end, the end of the world, but of the unfolding, the beginning of a new, remade, and transformed creation. The good news that thanks to the tender mercy of God, which will be first heralded by John, thanks to the good news that there will come the dawn of the rising sun, of Jesus, whose light will forever pierce the darkness of our sin, whose light will forever eclipse the shadow of death, once and for all. Beloved, just as God prepared the people of Zechariah and Elizabeth's day for his unexpected first arrival in the vulnerability of a child's birth, God is preparing us for his second and final coming in the glorious deliverance of a new creation. 
To put this another way, God's gift of preparation through the Christmas story, what we celebrate, it's not about us having us look back on the birth of Jesus merely for the sake of some momentary nostalgia. It's not about even looking back to remember the reason for the season. No, God's gift of preparation through the Christmas story is to make us ready. It's to keep us vigilant for the best that's yet to come. We recall, we celebrate what God has already done through the birth of Jesus' life. We recall and celebrate this life offered from the very beginning as a gift to bring us hope, a life that ultimately will be given willingly on a cross for the sake of realizing God's promise of the salvation of all creation, of a life that will embrace death but refuse to be confined by it. We celebrate all of this that our hope becomes eternal. We recall and celebrate all of this, what God in Jesus already has done in order to be prepared in order to be assured, in order to keep looking ahead for what has yet to be realized. Christ's return, the return of our King. Jesus coming back not to be born as a baby, but to deliver the birth of a new heavens and a new earth, the dawn of the kind of life together that honestly is beyond the limits of our comprehension, the kind of life that we can only appeal to through fleeting, half-baked conceptions of world peace, utopia and living happily ever after. For us, any vision of peace on earth and goodwill towards all people, for us, that only lasts as long as the holiday season. After the 12 days of Christmas, we put away such fanciful, lofty notions with all the rest of the lights and decorations until the same time next year. For many, for many, the true spirit of Christmas is nothing more than childish idealism, that we are meant to grow out of in order to live in the real world, a world that's future remains perpetually in doubt and darkness. And therefore, the popular narrative these days is the foreboding, lifeless story of the inevitable global-wide chaos and destruction of this world, of this world going up in flames, of the end of all things, rather than the rising dawn of a new, redeemed creation. But my friends, what more and more people may write off as naive fantasy or religious myth, God prepares us through Christmas to realize, to remember, as in fact an age-old covenant weaved from the very beginning into the fabric of history, a divine promise that quite literally becomes flesh in order to lead us into a certain and better tomorrow and beyond. In and through Christ, God prepares us not only to be able to finally see the path to peace in our lives in this world, but also to be empowered to walk upon that path, to share this divine peace that passes all human understanding, to share it with each other. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we worship a God who, again, doesn't just drop into our lives. We worship a God who prepares us for his presence in and through our lives, who prepares us for the work he is doing in and through this world. God prepares us by naming, defining in advance what he is doing so that we are not left to, to narrowly label his movements, so that we're not left to limit such moments according to our traditions and expectations. No, God prepares us by revealing what will come next as he opens not only our eyes to see, but also our mouths like Zechariah to give voice to what is about to happen through the word, and the Spirit, the Lord, puts the particular words on our lips to describe what is unfolding and what it all means for us. But here's the thing. There's just no way around it. Here's the thing. 
all of God's preparations, how the Lord seeks to inspire, inform, and equip us, the gift of divine preparation is left unrealized by us as we remain consumed by our own busyness. It left unrealized as we continue to believe that it is we who prepare ourselves for Christmas. Because when the coming of Christmas becomes all about our preparation, it soon becomes easy to convince ourselves that it's we and we alone who make not only the holidays happen, but it's we and we alone who make life happen. It becomes easy to believe we're in control of whatever comes next in our lives. And my friends, the more we tell ourselves it's all up to us, that we are each the masters of our own destiny, that life is whatever we make of it. The more we tell ourselves we're only limited by the limits we put on ourselves, the more we tell ourselves it's up to us, the less aware, the less open we will be to all the preparation the Lord offers to us, all the wisdom, all the guidance, all the strength, the endurance, the assurance, the provision, the less receptive we will be to the God who comes to us in Jesus Christ to show us the way, to lead us into what is true, to impart to us the life that is full and abundant, to impart to us the life in which perfect love conquers every fear, the life which death, no matter what its form, can never hold. When we prepare ourselves, God has to fit into the box of our expectations. The Lord is falsely confined by the limits of our preconceptions and vision. But when we allow God to prepare us, not just for Christmas, but when we allow God to prepare us for each and every day, the Lord stretches and shapes us. The Lord grows and matures us to adapt, to fit into, to conform into the unexpected things he is doing both in and through us. Beloved, we need, oh, we need the unexpected gift of divine preparation We need the gift of divine preparation because despite all the effort and energy we invest into trying to put our lives together on our own, on our own terms, there is so much, isn't there? There's so much that can and will come at us, that can and will come at us for which, left to our own devices, we will find ourselves completely unprepared. Opportunities and challenges for which we can struggle to give a name. What is this? Questions that are raised, decisions that need to be made, and outcomes that will result into which we are left wondering, what does this all mean? Where is this all going to lead? Christmas time is often billed as the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? That's the song, right? But this time of year, the holiday season is hard. It's acutely painful for those of us who find ourselves missing the presence of someone in our lives, someone that always was there. Whatever the reason, and whether that sense of loss or absence is recent or still lingers from many, many years ago, some of us know all too well that the brokenness of this life, the brokenness of this world, can bring situations for which we never planned or anticipated. Things we never were prepared for. The absence of a loved one. The loss of a long-standing career. The fracturing, the end of a relationship that was expected to last. The sudden compromising and decline of one's health physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. The looming awareness of our mortality 
before the growing shadow of death, before all for which we may find ourselves unprepared, before all that we may be unprepared, the Lord offers us the gift of what he has prepared for us. God in Christ comes down to where we are in the muck and mire of our failures and our losses. God comes down to us in all of the chaos and confusion of a world gone mad. God in Christ shows up right in front of us to assure us we are not alone, that we don't have to go it alone. God in Christ teaches and models for everyone what our humanity can be, what our life together can become, that the big questions of life do have answers, and all of those answers point to him. God in Christ prepares us to die to ourselves by dying the death we deserve in the name of forgiveness in order to wipe our slate clean, to wipe our slate clean of guilt and shame, and then by eclipsing, by conquering once and for all the death we fear, God in Christ prepares us to rise into the best versions of ourselves by empowering us with his spirit and assuring us that following him, following him leads to an everlasting tomorrow. Beloved, it's only as we enter into how our Father prepared the world for the very first Christmas that we are able to experience the unexpected gift of preparation of our Father preparing us for the last, final, and best Christmas still to come. That last, final, best Christmas when the songs we sing will no longer be the music of our deepest longing, but the expression of our unending praise. That last final best Christmas when all the light and color that we artificially plaster here and there will finally become the natural palette by which Jesus repaints the cosmos. That final last and best Christmas when every tear will be wiped from our eyes, when death will be no more, when mourning, crying, and pain will cease to exist, when it will at last always be Christmas and never again winter. Beloved, The question is not, the question is not, are we ready for Christmas? The question is, how is God getting us ready for Christmas? And to learn the answer to that question, we have to actually stop long enough to look and see, to admit, to confess how so much of what happens around us, what happens to us, we can never adequately prepare for ourselves. We must, for longer than the blink of an eye, we must be still. We must be still, ceasing from all our doing and just abide, receiving what the Lord is offering us, the preparation we need to be able to name what's happening today and to give us voice to speak with confidence as to whatever comes next. So instead of always running out of breath, is that how you feel? Instead of always running out of breath because of what we've, we're trying to get done to make happen, let us stop, look, and listen as God once again takes our breath away, as the Spirit captures our imagination and reshapes our vision like Zachariah and Elizabeth, reshapes our vision like Mary and Joseph, reshapes our vision to realize, no matter how barren things may seem, To realize, despite all our questions and our doubts, nothing, nothing is impossible with the Lord. Amen.
If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.